0: Kenneth Gloss is the proprietor of Brattle Books in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here and talking with you.
0: You would be best known as a book appraiser for the antique roadshow.
1: Well, probably if you're outside of the Boston, yes. New England area. where I mean, the business goes back to the 1820s, but it's been in my family since the 1940s. So in the Boston area, in the greater Boston, we're well-known... Nationally, though, I do appraise, and my wife also appraises for the antiques road show, the public broadcasting, which is a lot of fun to do and and so on it's a great way for me to travel around the country, see people, meet other people. actually, the other appraisers are a lot of fun too going out to dinner it's it's social it's fun, and also too, our children now are twenty and twenty two so going away for a long weekend which we didn't do when they were younger, is easy. And it involves books and antiques and old things. And usually when you also have people who are interested in that type of material, they're interesting people. Yes. So as much as anything else, the people are interesting.
0: Perhaps the focus of our interview could be how you go about appraising a book, how things used to
1: be how things currently are and where you see things going. When you used to appraise books, it's still very much a subjective process. It's not a hard, fast... I mean, I could go to somebody and say, your book's worth $100 or $1,000. A colleague of mine could look at the exact same book and say it's worth $125. And another colleague look at it and say it's worth $75.
0: They could do that. In the past, now, they just have to go to ABE Books and see that there's a market value placed on...
1: Yeah, but a lot of it still is experience. It's it's knowing, because there's no editing to ABE Books or any of those services. Anyone can put a book up at anything. I mean, I can take a $100 book, put it up tomorrow at $10,000. Someone will look at it the day after tomorrow and say, well, it's a $10,000 book. So that really doesn't have that much to do with it. It's a guide. It's a tool. And some people with a tool can smash their fingers with a thumb. Other people can make fine cabinetry. So, again, a lot of it is experience and know-how. One of the things that I tell people to look at first is not the price, but how many. If you go online and you find 300 copies of a book out there, and they're priced from $5 to $5,000... And essentially, they're all the same. You don't even pick the middle, because if you were buying the book, would you pick the $1,500 one? Would you pick the $5 one? So one of the first things I say to look for is how many, because if there's loads of them, that means they're not selling, essentially, at whatever the price is. And then if there aren't very many, just a couple online, well, then you know it's a harder to get, a little bit rarer. But it still comes with experience. Someone calls me and says, this is in mint condition and perfect and wonderful and so on. And then you ask and you find out it doesn't have a dust jacket, has a couple of wormholes. And they go, yeah, but for the age. The minute someone says to me, but for the age, the minute they say but, then I know, okay, what's wrong with it? So, and that nowadays can make such a huge difference in the price. I went out yesterday, uh, looked at a lady's set of Audubon quadrupeds. She called me. I we talked about a price. When I got out there, there were six plates missing. I still bought it. I still paid in the thousands of dollars, but it w- it was a disappointment to both of us. But if she had put that online, she had checked online. She had seen complete, beautiful copies, but it wasn't what she had. So the online the the check it really does make a difference. But for the person who knows what they're doing, knows how to read these things, had some idea of what they should be seeing, going online is a terrific tool. It's, it's wonderful. It really brings a lot of knowledge. The other thing, now with the auction records and all of that online, and also on a disc, you know, we used to have a wall, literally a wall of auction records that you would go from book to book to book to book, and it would take forever. Now you type in two keywords, out pops the auction record. If you're not quite sure who the author was or what the date was, you can get enough keywords in. So that's made the process much easier. Plus,
0: you know in the auction, you can rely upon the description of the book as being accurate.
1: In most cases, yeah. and 99.9% of the cases, you can rely on it, of course, you know when people are entering. I know a lot of times when I'm buying a book for a customer and I go and check one of the online services to find the book, many times I don't always buy the cheapest copy I'll buy a copy that uh, I know who the dealer is, and I know if that dealer is describing the book that way, that's the way it's going to come, as opposed to you know people who might not know what they're doing, and then there's fraud online, you know, people who are outright are there to defraud you, and and but there are even more the problem is there are just so many people who don't know what they're doing,
0: which is which is why it's beneficial, and again, just sort of self-serving in a way, but if the bookseller is a member of uh... The uh, iLab or AABA, that they have a code of ethics.
1: Yeah, in in ABAA, you have to be in business. You have to be recommended. I mean, there's a whole vetting process. Not to say that it's absolutely perfect, but at least you know that there's some recourse. There are people to get in touch with. In in many most cases, our reputation is worth much much more to us than any one buy one sale one thing. And that's in you know very much in the minds of every dealer who's a member. So. Yes, that is important. And also, too, just the experience. You know, a lot of people say you can go online now and this, but the experience that a dealer can help you with in directing you and saying if you're interested in this, you should be looking for this and this. Maybe you want to get in touch with so-and-so. Sometimes even putting you in touch with other collectors because a lot of the fun of the collecting is the hunt, the search. But it's also at the, going to these library sales, book sales, auctions, New York auctions, rare book dealers. It's the relationships you build up. Yeah. Uh, and, and also meeting the, the, the other collectors. The
0: it's getting yeah. to know the community and, uh, and sharing an enthusiasm with the people which, that, that go crazy like you do.
1: Absolutely. And then also what happens is as you get more into whatever subject or field you're going to, many of the collectors become more of an expert than some of the dealers because you know they're dealing with this one author or one small subject as opposed to a dealer, even a specialist dealer who might be a little bit more broad. But So, you know, when you're appraising, it's it all comes down to what is it, what condition, who is it. Also, what's the reason you're appraising it? You know, if you're appraising it because you're buying it as a dealer, obviously there's a profit margin built in, mm-hmm. so it's going to be somewhat lower. If you're appraising it for insurance values... Well, if you're looking at someone's collection and they want to replace these books and they want to make sure they replace them, you tend to go to a higher retail value. If you're appraising it for in- estate or insurance, or, uh, or state or, or, or tax deductions, they're all in the same ballpark, but there can be reasons behind the appraisal and why something might be appraised at one price or another, and it can be the exact same item.
0: What's interesting, though, is there could be a conflict of interest in a sense, as you say, you've got different motivations behind the, the, the appraisal. One, In one case, you want the price to be as low as possible. In another, you want to help your client by making it as high as possible.
1: Well, you know, whenever you're buying and selling and so on, you know, obviously you want to be fair, you want to make a profit, and there's always the, the conflict there. Usually, though, if I'm called in to do an appraisal and being paid for the appraisal, then I eliminate myself from being a buyer in that case. Matter of fact, many times I specifically will not do an appraisal because I'd much rather, you know, our business really is buying and selling books. I'd much rather someone else do the appraisal and then come in and buy the books. Or sometimes if you do the appraisal, you can act and help the person place the books, maybe sometimes on a commission basis or so on. But the, yeah, absolutely you have to be very careful of those conflicts, or you have to be absolutely upfront about it so that everybody knows you know what everybody's position is, and that usually works better. and matter of fact, one of the things that sort of getting back to this online and people doing it themselves, yeah. and a lot of people do, I find the easiest situation is when someone walks into my shop, they have a book, and then they pull out the sheaves of online things they've looked up. I mean, from a dealer's point of view, you start looking at that and you go, oh, you know, what's this gonna be? Because 90% of the time you get all that material and they say, well, it's worth thousands of dollars and you look at it and you go, well, that's not even the same book. (laughs) Or you go, it's not the same quality or condition. Or you say to them, well, wait a minute, were there other prices online yet? But we only took the top ones. The best situation I found is when the person has all that printed out. What they have printed out is about right. You look at the book they have. The book is actually the book that they're talking about, and, and then you and can in the right condition. Yeah, in the right condition, and then you can say, "Well, okay, it's a five thousand dollar book. I'll pay you three thousand dollars, or thirty five hundred, or two, depending on how fast it will sell." And you can work with the people. The frustrating point is when they come in with all of that, they think it's a $5,000 book. It's actually a pretty good $500 book, but at that point you can't offer $300 yeah, you know, because
0: they
1: feel insulted. Uh, Yeah, or or they feel taken advantage of or so on. So it's, it, actually the best case scenario is when they've done their own research and it's ac- accurate. <laughs> yes. and, and which is rare. <laughs> which is rare, and that, that's something that you, you can uh, work with.
0: But let's get back then, sorry, because I jumped ahead. Let's take the, the uh, it's called the Antique Roadshow, is it? The
1: Antique Roadshow, yeah. yeah.
0: You are provided a book that you then are responsible for evaluating. Well, what Can You ha- take us through the process of what goes through your <laughs> mind and the things that you do.
1: Well, what happens on that show? Remember, that show is television. It, it, it's an entertainment. It's a great show. It's a lot of fun.
0: And everyone's but, uh, waiting to uh, see, how much is it
1: worth? Yeah, and, and, you know, and I can speak as an appraiser on the show. I can't speak for the show. But you can go there, and no, no one can bring anything good, particularly, and you don't get on TV. So as an appraiser, you're not only looking for something that's good, but the person. Sometimes it's the character. But if a person comes in, and they have a $100,000 book, and they've done loads of research, they know everything there is to know about the book, they know exactly what it's worth... The Well, the appraiser can't add anything to it. Whereas, if somebody comes in and it's a really good item and there's a story behind it and you can add something to it, even if they know a fair amount, but there's something you can add as an. So, in assess, essence, when you're doing those type of appraisals, you're looking for the story and the entertainment value as much as the appraisal.
0: Okay. Well, let's let's take TV out of the equation.
1: Uh, well, that that we do all day long. Matter of fact, when I leave here today, I'm going to give a lecture. At the end of the lecture, people will bring up books to appraise, and I look at those books at my lectures, my talks, or people bring them in. First thing you look at is you see what the titles are. What are they old, new? Do they look like good copies or not good copies? Is the author someone who sells? What's the edition? Sizing up the person a little too, you know, what are trying to see what their expectations are. Will they be good to deal with, hard to deal with? Are you ever going to make them happy no matter what? I mean, all of that is going through through your mind. Basically, most groups of books that people bring in are individual books. It's a very fast process. You look at it, you've seen it a million times. It's probably, in most cases, not a rare book, because by definition, rare books Don't show Uh up so often. Don't show up so often.
0: Can we get some specifics here? Perhaps some titles that you would see quite frequently. Well,
1: the the types of...
0: People think maybe worth something that really they're not.
1: In this area in New England, there are a lot of people who have old houses, old places, and they come in with 100, even 200-year-old books. Uh, A lot of times they'll come in with editions of Longfellow, Whittier, a lot of the New England authors. They've been well-read, well-used you look at it, you know it's not quite the right edition, or even if it is the right edition, it's not in the condition, and you know that almost immediately. One of the things I've learned is you don't look instantly and say no. You you (laughs) You, give it a... Because they made the effort to come out and see Exactly. I mean, so you, you don't want to insult anybody. I mean, a lot of it is having people leave happy, even if what they have is not valuable. Yeah. Uh, so you look, you give it the, the once-over, and but, you do it, and that's very common. And, and what of course, you're
0: relying on is your own, your uh, own, own judgment. You pretty well have to keep a lot of it in your own head because you're called upon to make that decision without going back to refer...
1: Uh, 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 99% of it is done just off the top of your head, you, just from experience. I grew up with the business. my It was my parents' business. So literally, I worked here all my life I graduated college in 73, rather than go to graduate school, I took a year off. That's 34 years ago. So, I mean, I've been doing this constantly. But one of the things, though, that, and then once in a while someone will bring in something that seems a little more valuable, you have to check. We have a large reference section here. We'll come down with the book, double-check Uh, Huckleberry Finn, is it the right issues, the right points? But
0: what are the right issues? Well,
1: on Huck Finn, there's a uh, misspelling of the word was and saw. There's an illustration listed on page 83. So uh, specific little points that can make all the difference in the edition. What I tell people is nobody remembers all of that. But I know what reference book to check and look up. so like Sam,
0: what Sammy Johnson said, there's two kinds of knowledge. The, yeah. you've got in your head, the stuff you've got in your head and the information that you know where to get it from.
1: And absolutely. And there's a lot of times, I mean, there are other book dealers in this area or around the country who I know, and maybe I know that they just put out a catalog on Mark Twain, since I mentioned Huckleberry Finn. And I can call them up and say, look, I've got this one here. It doesn't seem to be quite fitting everything. Do you know anything about it? So, yeah, I know where to call, who to call, what to do. There were a lot of times, too, this actually is, was surprising when I first started doing a lot of the appraisal and lecturing and so on, is that when you tell people things aren't worth anything, they're thrilled. They're actually very happy. And Well, uh, I can even see by the frown on your face that that... that but what happens is, many times, an older couple... Or an older person will come in, and they'll have a children's book or a book like that, and you look at it, and you say, it's nice, but it's worth a couple of dollars. They go, great, we want to give it to our grandchildren. And if you had said it was worth a few hundred dollars, it's too expensive to give to them, it's not valuable enough to change anybody's life, it actually becomes a problem. (laughs) If you said it was worth $20,000, well, that's a different story. But when you say, oh, it's worth a couple of dollars, they go, wonderful, because what they really wanted to do was just have the assurance that they could give it to their children, grandchildren, make the gift of it, and so on. Another reason when we were talking about that I actually do look at the books, and this is an example, I was at a uh, talk, and someone, I saw coming down the line, had a copy of Catcher in the Rye. But it was terrible. I mean, it was in really lousy shape.
0: And the cover, uh, of course, is what you need.
1: Well, the it. dust jacket wasn't there. Oh. It was Even that. And I was all set. You know, sometimes you get a little full of yourselves, and you go, oh, that's nothing. You know, I don't even have to look at it. But I don't do that. I've learned. <laughs> and, of course, they opened it up, and there was a long inscription to their grandparents from J.D. Salinger. Mm. So... You know, it's probably no. worth twenty-five, thirty-five thousand, or more dollars at the time. So you look. You always look. There's always that. Isn't it funny one too?
0: Because when you're just talking about that when when one does go searching through the various garage sales yeah. and whatever. Even if it isn't in the greatest condition, as you say, that's the thing that one uh, collector will always do, is to to look, to see, because you never know. That kind of surprise is such a... that's part of the...
1: Well, that's part uh, of the fun. Of course, if you're going through, like, auctions or that, and you spot something like that, you hope nobody else sees it. Mm -hmm. But when you're a dealer and you're in someone's house, well, that's part of your responsibility. And I've also learned, almost no matter what someone says to you about knowing or not knowing about their books, many times they're testing... So, you know, they might go, well, we don't know, we're not sure. But they know full well that that there's a rare book in there, and they just want to see what you say. And, again, you're much better off. You might negotiate a little on the price, but you want to make sure that you're in what the range should be.
0: Well, again, uh, if you want us to business. Well,
1: really. and we've been in business for a long time, and it really isn't the any one deal. It's always the next deal. You go into someone's house, they're happy. Well, maybe their neighbor is the one who really has the great books, or their relative, or their friend. So it's always the next one. And, and it's always, for me, that sort of Jim Hawkins on Treasure Island. Uh, I went into a house. They were getting rid of some old uh, trunks and, you know, whatever at the end. Just before throwing them away, they held them. It turned out at the bottom of the trunk was ten letters of Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, they, Madison they Monroe. Well, they the reason they ended up with me, they then decided they wanted to donate them to a historical society. The historical society said, well, we'd love to have them, but do you know these are valuable? They referred them to me, and it actually worked out great all around because the letters ran into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. But the historical society wanted... A few specific ones. They ended up donated those to the historic, so they were happy. The people were happy. They got money. I was thrilled because we got some great letters that we made a profit oh, on. But uh, win, win, win. I, it was uh, one of the letters uh, Thomas Jefferson was talking about how to treat traitors and terrorists. And I mean, literally, he was talking about the War of eighteen twelve. But I felt like sending it off to some places <laughs> that they could have used it. So you run into things like that, and even though I deal with letters of Washington and Lincoln and Jefferson still when you're sitting there holding a letter that you know that Thomas Jefferson held or Albert Einstein held or it still sends tingles uh, and even though I deal with them so it's it's that's the part of it too it's a lot of fun
0: and why is it fun Uh,
1: well it's, it's always the hunt the find the interesting people there's always a story behind it I love stories and then find buying it finding the right person to sell it to, it's a business. Now, One thing I always tell people, though, you know, a lot of people hear about the romance of the used and rare book business. I'll tell you, if you forget the fact that it's a business, it doesn't last too long. Well, and so, that's,
0: in fact, something that's quite sad and tragic, is the number of used bookstores that are closing
1: down. Well, I my prediction would be, of the general used secondhand bookstores, especially in cities... Five years from now, 80% of them will be out of business. We hope to last by attrition, (laughs) you know, uh, the last man standing or last store standing. And the reason for that, well, first of all, up until a few years ago, the reason for it was a lot of the inner cities, the property value has gone way up, the rent has gone way up, uh, old bookstores are not efficiently run in most cases, and they can't afford the rent. The building we're in now and the lot we have next to it where we sell our cheaper books, we own the property. We them You know, the- it's
0: funny. I was just mentioning, I was talking with Patrick McGarren in Ottawa. He's, it's the same thing. He yeah. happens to own the building yeah well, which we, seems to be the, the, you you guys are the ones that are staying in business well,
1: we because... bought yeah we bought this building in the early eighties there's a whole story I mean when you're in a family business and my father was still alive, then he died in eighty five the process of how you go about making those decisions and how you work with your family can be a lot that's that's a whole other uh, situation, but the other thing of course that's really accelerating that is the internet. we had a colleague who uh, tells the story he a rare book dealer, and he just needed a book for reference, in other words, he was cataloging something, he needed a biography just so he could help with the he didn 't care what the condition was he didn 't care what it looked like. he just needed to quickly get some material to write his thing. He asked one of his assistants to go online to see you know buy the cheapest copy you can buy and his assistant came back about twenty minutes later and said well there 's one for a penny and he goes, Is there a phone number?" <laughs> So he got on the phone, he called this person up, and he said, how can you possibly sell this book for a penny? And the man said, I'm a retired teacher, I live in the Midwest in a small town, I get my pension, everybody in town knows I like old books, so they just, when they read them, or when they're done with their books, they put them on my porch. He says, I put them online, I charge actually $6 for the postage, it actually costs about 3 I sell a few hundred books a month, you know, at $3 a piece, that's five or $600. And, and I like it, and it's fun, but a store absolutely cannot compete with that. What I liken it to be is if you really think of used and rare bookstores, what what the customer is really paying for beyond some advice and knowledge is the gathering together process. In other words, what What I'm doing in my store is going out all over the New England area primarily, but even around the country, and buying books and gathering them together and getting them in one spot so that when you're looking for something, you find it. And that's what you're really paying the premium for. Yeah. The, internet, the
0: convenience the factor. Co-
1: right? Convenience. And in it, a
0: way, it's a bit like a newspaper. A newspaper pulls in all sorts of different stories and puts it into the same place right. so that you can efficiently go through what...
1: Yeah, and, and so on. But the Internet is much more efficient at that gathering together process now. It has brought prices way, way down... Yeah. Even things like, we used to sell lots of old life magazines and that type of thing. We actually just about stopped selling them in the last six months. People would come in, they'd buy them for a birthday present, they'd pay $20. I mean, it was a great present, you know, the birthday. Well, nowadays, you can go on the Internet and get every one of those magazines. They're not any cheaper, but rather than driving into downtown Boston, paying for parking, maybe taking the subway in, they can just go click click two days later it comes to their house it's more efficient it's easier so what do you need the bookstore for and that's i think ultimately where between rent overhead i mean we pay health insurance for employees we have eight or ten employees the overhead is huge it
0: seems to me again that previous to the internet people had to come to bookstores to get to get used books, they had no other options other than garage sales. Yeah, well, they,
1: that's right. And you were the store was very efficient at that gathering together, yeah. more so than any other. Now, the no, it's Internet, been that way. it's mm-hmm. being displaced. Although, you know, people say, well, we still love stores. We still love coming in. There's always the serendipity of finding the book next to the book that you didn't even know you wanted. Yes, exactly. uh, and and,
0: again, sorry to interrupt, but that's the, that's the idea of a newspaper as well. You know, if you just wanted to get news on things that you were interested in, you'd never come across these other interesting little stories that uh, that, are, that fascinate you.
1: That's, I, I absolutely agree with that the thing is our store would be is crowded and a lot of other stores are crowded and again we buy thousands of books yeah i can see we're actually (laughs)
0: sitting i'm I'm talking incidentally uh, with uh, with kenneth gloss who's the uh, proprietor of brattle books in boston and we're sitting next to uh, how many books do you think this is there's about
1: five or ten thousand in that pile And, and they teeter <laughs> yeah, we're sitting very close to it as well. So uh, we shouldn't talk to him. About it. I, I, I have a friend who uh, <laughs> we don't allow very many people down in our basement, is where we process. But I do have a very close friend who has come down here, and he one time tried to pull a book out of the pile and literally got buried. And now he will not touch anything in the piles. So people say we like to browse. Even some of the stores look busy, but if if a store loses even ten, twenty. 25 percent of its business to the internet in most cases or in many cases that's just enough to tip you over the edge
0: but do you Uh, how is business i mean the internet has helped you or has uh, it hurt you
1: well again i i I look at the internet as being a tool that you use and we don't put as much online as we'd like because it's you know if you're not doing it yourself the cost of doing it is expensive Mm -hmm. paying the labor the time and so on It's helped in some things. It's hurt in others. I'd say overall for the general used book business part of it, it's probably brought it down somewhat. Although for the rare books, it's probably helped a little bit. It's still for us the getting books. If we can get into the houses, get into the estates, buy the books, we're fine. We also have an empty lot next to our store well, we sell books at a dollar, three, and five. When we go out to houses and make an offer on a large estate, people are either moving; it's in state. And a lot of times, it's not the question of price or the what we're offering. The first question is, are you going to take everything? Yeah,
0: please take everything.
1: Well, no, it's not. Please, no. are you going to take everything? And if we say yes, they go great. Mm. If we say no, we're picking and choosing. Sometimes you can get into long negotiations, and the deal's done. Well, we have the ability to take those, maybe if we buy a few thousand books, and we really only want two or three hundred, we have the ability to take those other fifteen hundred, put them out at a dollar or two, at least cover our moving expenses, and also it draws a lot of people. It's very picturesque when it's not raining or snowing. So that's a big advantage. Also, the area we're in in Boston, in the last... 20 years, but particularly in the last 5 or 10, it's improved tremendously, the foot traffic's way up. The economy... Because people is, seem to
0: be moving into more condos or in the downtown
1: area. A building across the street from us was going to be a condos, but now it's going to be a college dormitory, which, although the students might not have quite as much money as the con, around the corner, if you had seen the street 20 years ago, there's a street next to us. You might have hesitated walking down it, now some of the condos sell for 5 and $6 million, you know, 30-story buildings. So we've gained from that, lost on other areas. Also, Basically, like... Basically,
0: what you're saying is you pretty well given all the significant changes. We're still doing all right. You're still doing, and, you, you know, your sort of profit margin is probably the same as it, as it always has
1: been. Which can be, well, it, it's, it, it seems to cost more and more to run the store. Wages go up, insurance goes up. Everything else. So it's a little tighter in cases, but also every used bookstore is a tiny business. I mean, even the biggest used bookstores on the scale of U.S. business and world business is tiny. And each person finds their own niche if they're successful. It might be dealing in just the top end to a few select clients, or with us, we cater to both and and so on. But what I do a lot of and I like doing is I go out and I speak a lot. I speak at local libraries, historical societies, on the radio, doing the Antiques Roadshow on PBS, doing things like that. So I do a huge amount of work going out and making sure people know about the stores and and know about us, and they might hear me speak or see that we have a PR person who even works with... I mean, I'm good at that. I like talking. But what happens is I might do one of these talks and... You don't hear anybody, 15 years later, someone, no, literally, yeah, yeah. 15 years later, someone yeah. calls, we're moving now, we heard you. We don't even remember where we heard you. But as long as I can keep the books coming in, then we can sustain the business. But it's change, it definitely is changing, and we have to adjust with that, too.
0: Maybe just in closing, we could we, uh, just identify again, because of your expertise as an appraiser, <laughs> scarcity, the name, the condition, anything else?
1: Yeah, the subject sometimes scarcity doesn't mean valuable. Rare does not mean valuable. I can have a book. You know, maybe one of my relatives wrote a book of poetry, had fifty copies of it, gave it out to my fa- signed it, inscribed it. Well, that's incredibly rare. Try to find a copy of it. It's impossible. But nobody wants it, so it doesn't necessarily translate to valuable. On the other hand. There are some books, like some of the Dickens or Twain or even Hemingway or Audubon, that if you've got the money, I can buy you the copies. I could probably even buy you multiple copies. So they're expensive. There are a lot of people who look for them. It's supply and demand, which almost everything is. But that makes a difference. Especially in the last 20 or 30 years, condition has become a tremendous factor. People tend to want the best book, in the best condition that it can possibly be and you can have a first edition of let's say great gatsby by uh fitzgerald and not too good copy worn red whatever and it's not worth a whole lot a decent copy without a dust jacket might be worth a few thousand dollars because it's a classic get a mint dust jacket which is almost impossible to get and you might be getting to 75 to hundred thousand dollars. You 75% have
0: percent of the value typically is in the, in the dust
1: jacket well, but in that case but in that case, you, in much, that much case more. even more, because first of all, it's a classic. a lot of people want it, but also that dust jacket happens to be very poorly made and subject to fading and falling apart. So you even have to know on this book the dust jacket's even rarer because it wasn't well done or made. Uh, so that gets into it a little signed or unsigned. We have a local author here who uh, used to come in the store all the time. He went into a bookstore once, a new bookstore, walked up to the section where his books were, pulled one out and exclaimed, my, a rare unsigned copy, and then he signed it. So some authors sign or don't sign, and you have to know how that enters into the factor. You know, if I'm sitting there and I know I have a customer who is looking for a specific rare book, and I know they want it, I know they have the money, well, then to me, that book might be worth 10%, 20 30% more than if I didn't have that customer or to maybe one of my colleagues who doesn't have that customer. And that's sort of where the nebulous factor can come into it. Uh, of course, once that person's bought that book, then it, it can uh, go up and down. And then trends can also change things. A, a movie comes out. And for a short time, the, the prices spike. Uh, a news story comes out, someone dies. It, it can spike up and down.
0: Also, if a book wins a prize, it, it spikes <laughs> right after that. And then a year down the road, you can get it for
1: half. Yeah, or, you know, for instance, um, in this area, Kennedy, the, the president, is off, when he was president, people got things. The prices after the assassination went up because obviously it was a huge event. But then it tended to tail off. And now it's starting to go up, but for the really rare things, it's going way up, because people are collecting American presidential. But demographics add into it. Kennedy was president in the 60s. '60, The people in this area who loved Kennedy, now most of them are at the age where they're breaking up their estates, they're going into their attics, or they're, it's, got, they're dying. And they've got money no no. no, what's happening is... What
0: are they becoming, coming on the market?
1: Everything's coming on the market now. It's... All of those people who were Kennedy followers, Kennedy supporters, maybe had letters of help, there's a lot more of it showing up now. So what happens is the average letter isn't as rare, at least for the next few years. The great letter can make a difference. in content, if you have a letter, and this goes, you know, this beyond is just a general beyond just talking about Kennedy. But if you have a letter and he says, I'm sorry I can't speak at your local library tonight. You know, thank you for inviting me. If you have a five-page letter talking about the significance of the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, you can be talking, well, it's a signed Kennedy letter. And someone says to me, well, what's a Kennedy letter worth? In that case, one might be worth hundreds of thousands. One might be worth hundreds. Then you also get into, is it typed? Is it handwritten? Is it actually signed, or is it signed by a secretary? Is it on congressional, Senate... White House stationery. What's the condition of it? Who was it to? I'm using letters as something that all of that is going through my mind when I'm evaluating. The same thing happens when a book comes in. Is it the right edition? Is it the right binding? What's the condition? Is it faded? Has it been well used? But there are times when, when that can change, too. Another example of not judging a book by its cover, my father had a copy of Great Gatsby. I'm using that one as an example. Worn well-read, you know, and you sort of say, again, when you look at it, eh, even if it's a first edition, open it up and ins- inscribe to the greatest living poet, T.S. Eliot, sincerely F. Scott Fitzgerald, and then Eliot annotated every page of the book. So you now, if we still had that book, it might be worth a few hundred thousand dollars, mm. easily. How, how
0: did you come across that, by the way? Was it,
1: it Well, Eliot's mother lived in the area and, and so on, but this was 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, I wish I had it back. My daughters, who are twenty and twenty-two, I bring things home, show them to them, especially in high school when they were both home, and they'd. And look they were, they it, were and, studying these uh, records. Obviously. Yeah, well, no, most of it they'd look at it and they go, "Ah, Dad brought home another old thing." <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you know, but one of my daughters recently said, "You know, you've had all this great material, you've had all these wonderful things. There's all these. Don't you wish you had kept them?" And I said, yeah, so I could sell them again. Yeah. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> and so, you
0: did well at the time. But, uh,
1: boy, I wish I still had it. I could sell it again. And But that's the point where I, I bring back. It's still a business, and it's wonderful to have these things. It's wonderful to buy and sell. My wife collects books on jazz, so we do have a nice collection of jazz books. We do have a few things at home. But it's a business, and you have to make a profit. Uh, I don't have independent income beyond that. I'll tell you, even one of the things that I worry about, I mean, I'm in my mid-50s. I want to keep doing this for years and years and years, health permitting. But if it ever did come down to it and my daughters didn't take over, the property is probably worth so much more than the business is that I don't know, even if I wanted somebody to continue it, whether it would be feasible. And that, again, that's changing business. But the other thing that comes down to, you know, I look at this, and all my colleagues who have been in the business for years look at it, and probably through the 50s, 60s, up until this period, depending on how long you've been in it, especially the ones who have been in a while, have done well. It was wonderful the way it was. We liked it. The Internet is changing things. Google, if they ever get their project of putting every book in all these libraries online... I mean, that's going to drastically change the used and rare book business. I mean, it, it's going to maybe put it out.
0: They're taking those and you know, they're just doing facsimile copies and those but, available on demand.
1: Right, but they're available. So if a student needs to read it, a researcher re- needs to read it, you in still... In one
0: sense, it's wonderful. It's wonderful yeah. to have this access to the yeah. information, but as you say, from your perspective...
1: If for my, you know, but for society in general... It maybe it's not the worst thing in the world, but for the used rare book dealer that I like doing, and the people who like to feel touch, collect, and so on I don't know what the future will be, and I don't know whether it's better or worse overall I think there'll always be collectors out there who want the book there'll always be research libraries out there because there are a lot of things you can tell about the quality of the paper, the binding, the material of how a book was made it tells you a lot about the time, the era, Mm. the book itself, how different editions looked over time are important and can make a wonderful collection.
0: Different audiences, obviously, Uh, because there's an audience for the content and then there's an audience for the the, the (laughs) historical value and the collectible value. But
1: you get the people who just need the content. I was talking earlier when you were talking about appraising of the uh, auction records. They used to be a wall of books. It's on a CD-ROM now. I can put it, it in saved my... you
0: so much time.
1: And I can put it in my pocket and carry it with me. Uh, you know, now it's gone online. I can take my uh, camera or phone, camera, phone, Internet access, and they're still not quite fast enough. Give it a year, and I'll have this little tiny device that will instantly get me that information. Uh, that seems awfully good to me, but uh, it sure makes all the old copies of the auction records not worth anything. And that's a general change. I hope to be doing this for a long time, and I'll keep the business going.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Well,
1: thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Kenneth Gloss is the proprietor of Brattle Books in Boston, Massachusetts.